Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Thanks so much for welcoming me back. A lot has happened in the last year. Um, we moved to a new apartment. Um, my wife got a new job that you can ask her about later. Uh, most importantly, though, I cut my hair, which is pretty good. If you guys remember last time I had, I think it was probably 10-inch long hair. Um, so we are going to jump right in to reading the Word today. Um, I'm preaching on Jonah chapter 1, which I believe is on page 451 of the Pew Bibles. Um, you might also be opening an app, which is fine, which I'm actually going to do. So if you'd turn your Bibles there. I'm going to read our passage, I'll pray, and then we will hear instruction from the Word of God. Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go up to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and had lain down, and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish." And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you for your word. And we ask now that you instruct us from it. That we may be equipped for your worship and for our edification. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm pretty sure that we've all heard this story before, the story of Jonah. Just the very beginning of the story of Jonah here 
though, is very rich. It's heavy with theology. It has application to the heart, and it even looks forward to Christ. From just the beginning, we can learn a whole lot about who God is, the way human beings have wandered from God, and how God has saved humanity. Today, our three points will be God's call, our disobedient response, and thirdly, God's solution. So we're going to jump right into point one, God's call. Um, And this includes a little bit of Jonah's background. Verse one says that uh, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And we need to know who Jonah is. Jonah was an established prophet of the time. In 2 Kings, it records that Jonah had predicted King Jeroboam II's conquest to recover some land for the northern kingdom of Israel. And so to a Hebrew hearer, that means the name Jonah, it would be recognizable as a prophet already. This isn't the first time that they would have heard Jonah's name. He's a historical figure, just like if I were to reference President Kennedy today. And in this book, in the book of Jonah, the message from God for Jonah is very different. The specific words that the Lord gave to Jonah were a command to preach a message of condemnation and repentance to Nineveh. And Nineveh itself, it's a great big city. It's a capital city of the Assyrian Empire, which is off to the north of Israel. The Lord, the God of Jonah, commanded him to go to a Gentile nation. Assyria was a Gentile nation. And he was to preach that this Gentile nation was doing evil. As you can see in verse 2, God says, Their evil has come up before me. I find this interesting, and I think that Jonah finds it a little bit worse than interesting. Why would God send an Israelite prophet, one of God's chosen people, to tell a Gentile nation that they were acting wickedly? Isn't it obvious that they're acting wickedly? They're Gentiles. They serve other gods. In the Old Testament, we often think of of God's promises for redemption as only applying to God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham. God only has purposes to love and to save his chosen Israelites, right? Well, you know, here at New Life, we are a Presbyterian church, and we believe in predestination or election. And first of all, let me be clear that if you don't believe in predestination, you're still welcome here, welcome to worship, and even welcome to be a member. But I'm speaking right now about specifically what the PCA, what's on the books in the PCA, is what we believe scriptures teach concerning salvation. We believe that God chooses, he elects, and he predestines certain people to have faith. And he gives the Holy Spirit to those people so that they have the ability to believe. At the core, this is because all humans are sinful by our very nature, corrupted since the first sin of our forefather Adam. And now people are naturally inclined to reject God rather than give him homage and love him. So we're Presbyterians who believe in predestination. Some people will say to Presbyterians, that doesn't give you any incentive to preach good news to sinners because God is the one who does the work of regeneration, of causing the first spark of faith, which is involved in repentance. Why evangelize at all? Why should we go preach good news to sinners if God is the only one who can actually do anything about it? He can and he would save those people even without our work because he had chosen them ahead of time anyways. People will lobby against the Presbyterians. Well, I actually wonder if that was Jonah's own line of thinking. Jonah might have thought to himself, I'm not going to Nineveh because those are the wretched non-believers. 
If God wants to cause repentance in their heart, he can do it. That's fine. But I'm not going to be a part of it. He can do it on his own. In fact, we know that this is what he thought. Because in chapter 4, Jonah actually talks back to God a little bit. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, after Nineveh had repented and after he had fled to Tarshish. He says, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Really, Jonah? You're convinced that God could save those people and that he could save anyone. He just didn't want to be the one doing the preaching, that's all. He didn't want to be the one to evangelize and to say the hard things to the Assyrians who were living in Nineveh. Let God do the saving, Jonah thought, because he will save, and he wants to save them at the end of the day, so he can do it on his own. So Jonah thought. And I think this, this line of thinking ought to shape how we think of God's love for the nations, and in particular, the non-believers, the sinners, the outcasts, who God absolutely does have love for. If Jonah is right, if Jonah thinks that he thinks that God is a gracious God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and that God does have love for Nineveh, then we as Christians also better heed God's call to preach to non-believers and to the nations. Why? Here's God's plan. God certainly can and he certainly does turn people's hearts to himself. He sends the Spirit. He's the one who does the work. He causes that initial spark of faith. But from Jonah's story, there's another thing that's also clear. God intends to spread the good news of the gospel by way of, essentially, our word of mouth. He wants believers to spread the message. He could do it any way he chooses to, but he calls upon his people. He calls upon you and me to spread the message, high and low, around the world, to the foreigner far off to sinners far off or the neighbor nearby. So, if you ever hear anyone speaking against the Reformed or Presbyterians or, or anyone who believes that there's no need to evangelize, you can point to Jonah and say there's absolutely a need to evangelize. God called Jonah to preach to the nations who were far from him. He could have spoken to the Ninevites directly, but he chose Jonah. Let it not be said of anyone here that we hesitate to share good news or that there is no incentive to share our faith or that world missions don't matter. They do matter. From our seats, we can't tell who will have faith or who won't have faith, who is elect, who isn't elect, but God does know and he uses human agents like you and like me to do his work on this earth. He uses Jonah and he uses you. And as a, as a minor sub-point, at the end of the story, in chapter 3, God actually does cause the city of Nineveh to repent from their erroneous ways. Not forever and not across the board, but God had true intentions in sending Jonah to the Ninevites. And some people, again, will say, if God only choose, chooses to elect and save some, then he doesn't really mean it when he says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. In other words, some claim that God doesn't actually want all people to know him if he's only chosen certain people. But I think this story is a great example otherwise. I think God telling Jonah to go preach to this sinful group who are lost, they're not part of the chosen people of Israel, but he still sends Jonah to those people. That is evidence otherwise. 
We see in Jonah that God pursues after the lost. He includes in his plan of salvation those who were initially far off. And what that means is in Jonah's time, God loved non-Israelites as well as Israelites. He loved that population of the world enough to send his word through his messenger. And in our age, in the church age, that means God has love for people who don't seem savable to you and who don't seem savable to me. We just don't know who is or who isn't elect, so we have to default to assuming that God does have plans to save them so that we will preach the gospel to them. There is a genuine, real offer of the gospel to all humans. This is what's known as the general call because it goes to all humans. God calls all people to himself and that he wants all humans to hear and know that he loves them. Some will still reject him, that's true, but they are still loved by God. And if we apply this concept to today, God loves and desires repentance from people you want to run away from, just like Jonah ran away from Nineveh. Why? Because God is a God of steadfast love. He is merciful and long-suffering and patient, and he intends to incorporate people from all reaches into his own fold. I think we Christians, we can take a close look at ourselves and think through if our care and desire for the lost, does it match up with God's own desire to have mercy on sinners? Maybe for some people, we don't think that those of a different sexual ethic are worth saving, are worth hearing about God's love. We think that those must not be the ones that God has chosen, certainly. Maybe it's those crazy, loud kids with all the tattoos and piercings and leather clothes who get really loud at night. Maybe it's more severe. Maybe it's along racial lines, like an immigrant population from another country or a different skin color. I think it's very accurate to say that God loves those people particularly and desires to bring them close to himself. And that brings me to the second point about Jonah's disobedience in resisting this mission. For point two, let's zoom in on the obedience of Jonah in particular, or rather, the lack of obedience. What does Jonah do? Incorrectly, he thought that since God will have mercy, I don't have anything to do in this situation. Instead of going to Nineveh, if you look in verse three, he got on the boat that was headed to Tarshish. And to get an understanding of what this is like, here's a, here's a graphic. Jonah was living near Joppa, which is on the bottom right side of the screen, when the Lord called to him. And Nineveh was a good distance away from Joppa, as you can see. It's, it's a little over 500 miles to the northeast. That would be where Assyria was. Tarshish, however, you can see is in about the opposite direction, about as far as you can go in the known world at that time, all the way far away in Spain. And so we can see in verse 3 of our text that Jonah's goal was to flee from the presence of the Lord. This wasn't just some geographical fluke. He was trying to get away. And, and you know, Jonah is in a distinct category where God directly commanded him, right? He heard the voice of the Lord. He directly commanded him to go to a certain place to preach. Most of us, admittedly, we don't have such a direct word from God. We haven't been in Jonah's shoes. We're not prophets. For example, I'm going to seminary now to learn how to preach the Bible, and I certainly haven't had a direct word from God to go and learn how to do that. And that's the case for most of us. We haven't had that. But 
we all certainly have gotten into our metaphorical ships and we've sailed away from the presence of the Lord, hiding from God because of the difficulty of the tasks that we face. I think I can relate to Jonah. I think you can probably relate to Jonah too. Let me give an example of a time when, when, I mean, currently I'm running from God in a certain way. I work in a, in a small bicycle shop with just two other coworkers and my boss. So it's a very small environment. Lots of lots of hours talking in the back room in the bike shop, having just, you know, general chit chat as it might go. Um, I'm not full time because of school, but I'm probably close to 2,000 to 2,500 hours over the course of the last two years working in this bike shop. And I try to tally up and just think loosely how many of those hours I spent explicitly sharing the gospel. Probably 10 to 15 of those 2,000 hours. 0.5% of my time spent at work. And we feel pretty natural talking about anything else. We've spent time discussing anything, but I haven't spent time discussing the one thing that is the most important to me. Now, I don't want to badger them and, you know, preach the gospel incessantly to the point where I get fired because I can't actually complete my duties. But I do think that I can be more obedient to God by, sitting, by simply just letting my full cup spill over onto my coworkers, maybe spilling a little on them. I really like that imagery of a cup full of God's love. You see it in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. Don't let it just overflow onto the ground. Let it, let it get on people a little bit. And I think at the end of the day, what it really comes down to is I don't share the gospel enough because I don't expect God to do anything about it. It's almost as though he has these traits of love and mercy and steadfast, steadfastness, but they seem like passive traits to me in my mind sometimes, like they don't do anything. Have you ever felt like God's mercy doesn't actually work? Like we're working for no reason at all. We spend time sharing the message with people, meeting with them often, and nothing happens. But this is far from true. God's love is active and has power over sin and over sinners. The Holy Spirit is set loose to liberate captives around the world because God is love. Because God is love, God does love. And only, God only is love because he does love. You see, we've not believed that God will have mercy, so we've, we've sat on our hands. We've all been disobedient, thought God couldn't do it, and run away from the situation just like Jonah. Plus, here's another thought. We sit historically on the side after Christ has been raised. When we are disobedient and negligent in sharing the love of God, there's really no accounting for it. It doesn't make any sense. We've been redeemed by Christ. We know him in a personal way. Jonah only knew the shadow of Christ that loomed in the Old Testament. For us, Jesus' death and resurrection has happened in our past. Therefore, we should be able to share the gospel much more easily because we can point to a time when Jesus was raised, when he was victorious. We can say here, I have, an, I have a record of the moment in which the wrath of God that belongs to you was poured on Jesus instead. So let me end point two with a call to be obedient. We must not have confidence in our own ability to turn sinners into saints because that is God's job, but we shall spread good news. What does this look like? It means, like I said, letting your cup spill over. And I don't think this means you need to be standing on street corners shouting at the top of your lungs to be effective. Simpler ways can work wonders. For example, ask somebody who's having a hard day 
if you can pray for them and do it in the name of Christ, their Redeemer. Do it out loud if they'll let you. Or maybe there's somebody you know who hasn't gone to church since their childhood or maybe they haven't gone to church at all. Invite them to church. Tell them first. The first time they might not like it. It might take them a few tries. And then maybe after two to three weeks of them coming to church with you, sit down with them, have some coffee, and just ask them how, how they thought of it. it. You're going to be better equipped for that conversation than you might think. So, point three. God's solution for our disobedience. There are plenty of types of, of disobedience that I mentioned in point two, but those are only a sliver of the manifold ways that we have been disobedient before the Lord. We've certainly acted in all sorts of ways contrary to his ways and his holy statutes. So for point three, we should look at God's solution for what happens when we're disobedient. Jonah's disobedience earned him the punishment of being thrown overboard and swallowed by a fish, which I've heard is pretty unpleasant. Haven't tried it. So our own disobedience in a similar way earns us the justice of God. And I think it's interesting the way the author of Jonah, uh, he depicts Jonah's actions. In our passage here, it's repeated a number of times how Jonah is going down. He goes down to Joppa. Then he goes down into the boat. And in verse 3, just a little bit down the page, when everyone is scared about the storm, um, and then in verse 5, they, uh, they find Jonah down in the depths of the boat. And it's as though he's sinking this whole time. In his prayer to God in chapter 2, um, which I'm not preaching on. You can read that for yourself. I'd encourage you to read it when you get home for his own kind of personal take on this. In that prayer, uh, which is his lament, Jonah repeatedly talks about the depths to which he has sunk. He likens it to a pit. Jonah got himself in pretty deep. Jonah's running from God, and he's running from the consequences. He's hiding from God, and he wants to get as far away from Israel as he can. So he goes all the way to Char- Tarshish. And again, we can relate to Jonah. In our weakness, we find it much easier to hide from God rather than face up to him. It's the human condition, right? It's just like Adam and Eve in the garden. When they first sinned, they hid from God. It's about the most human response that there can be. In fact, it's more than just a human response. My parents had a little dog, a little Boston Terrier, who sometimes would get into the trash can, and so we'd find an empty trash can and you know, all the garbage kind of strewn about the kitchen, um, but we wouldn't find the dog because the dog was hiding under the bed or somewhere, um, usually on the second story. Even that silly animal could tell that there was going to be judgment and consequences for her wrongdoing. So when the storms break out on the sea, the other mariners, they came to Jonah to have him pray to his God so that their ship wouldn't go down. And I think this is actually a big crossroads in the story when they go find Jonah and say, pray to your God. Think if Jonah had done that and just said, God, forgive me for my trespass. I will go as you have told me. I wonder if the outcome would have changed at all. We don't have a way of knowing, but Jonah knows what he did wrong. Finally, when the crew casts lots to find out who is at fault, they figure out that it was Jonah, and they come and ask him some questions. And finally, at this point, he finally reveals that he's a Hebrew. He serves the Lord God in verse 9. He admitted his fault, but instead of praying to God, turning to this God, who he said, he knows this God is merciful. He knows this God has steadfast love. Instead of interceding on on his own behalf and on behalf of the ship's crew, he told them to throw him into the sea. Jonah, you know that God is full of mercy and patience. Why are you doing this? 
If you think he's going to spare Nineveh, why would he not also spare you? But then when the boatmen all realize that their efforts are in vain, those men, the other men, turn to God and cry out, O Lord, they call upon the Hebrew name Yahweh. Let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Then they threw Jonah into the water and a fish swallowed him whole. How contradictory. It wasn't the Lord's prophet, but a group of of strangers on this boat that call out to God and seek his deliverance. They're the ones speaking about God's sovereign will and pleading for mercy. Jonah's the one who who knows the Lord and should rightly fear him. But Jonah doesn't turn to God in accordance with God's love and mercy. Instead, he just asks, asks to be thrown in the water. And I think there's a big breakdown in who Jonah knew God to be and what he was willing to do about it. Jonah knew God could save Nineveh, but he decided to flee from God because he didn't want to be a part of that. Jonah knew God could save himself, but instead... He didn't reach out. He didn't repent. And he didn't ask for deliverance from the Lord. And I think there's a breakdown for us too. Whenever we go on sinning and trying to hide our sin from God, we know in our minds for sure that God is able to forgive. We proclaim that all the time on Sundays. But we hide from fear that God will decide not to forgive us, but to have judgment upon us. And I think this is self-harm to the highest degree. Instead, we should run into the loving arms of our Savior. We're like sick people who need a simple antibiotic to survive, like penicillin, but we don't take it. Though we know there's a cure, we go on getting sicker, not trusting the cure to make us well. But what is our cure? What's the cure for our disobedience? Or for that matter, what was the cure for anyone's sin? Jonas included. The death of Jesus is the cure. Let me read Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. I love that line from Jesus. Something greater than Jonah is here. As I said before, Jonah preached repentance. But we have something greater. We can point to and we can account for our deliverance more than the Ninevites could at that time. We can look at not a future saving yet to come, but a present saving because Jesus is alive. He has a resurrected body and he's seated now at the right hand of God interceding for you and me. Christ, here in this passage in Matthew, he accounts for his own death and burial as akin to and the same as uh, Jonah being in the belly of the fish. Jonah was punished for his disobedience by being cast into the belly of the fish. Christ was punished for our disobedience by being subject to God's wrath and being placed in the tomb for three days, just like Jonah. God himself laid in a tomb. Christ, 
overcame the punishment of death. And he rose victorious over sin and its greatest consequence by dying to it and then being raised over it. Since Jesus now lives, therefore, we reign with him. We can only live lives of obedience if we're saved by him and live in union with him. He's made us a new creation. Turn to him, trust in him, and he will redeem your life and he will enable you as a new being to walk in obedience in the good works which he prepared for you, as it says in Ephesians 2. Yes, Christians, we owe him allegiance and must spread the good news as it's proclaimed in the Bible. At every turn, we must apply this same grace that's granted to us in personal obedience to Christ, to our own lives. Christ is rich in mercy. Call out to him from the midst of the storm, and he is quick to forgive. He's patient, and he is loving. Don't let the waves of your sin consume you, but turn to him because he's mighty to save. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you so much for your call to us, your effectual call, which has made us new beings, new creations in your Son. God, we ask that you make us obedient to your calling on our lives to preach the good news to the nations, to our neighbors, to overflow with your love. And God, we thank you so much for sending your son who was put to death, was laid in a tomb for three days, and yet was victorious over the grave, now living at your right hand. We thank you so much for his atoning blood and for his intercession on our behalf. It's in this Christ's name we pray. Amen.